This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. In the cave with me tonight, I have Cerise Howard. Hello. Hello, Cerise. <laughs> oh, no, are we doing that? Yes. <laughs> Hello. You, you and Emma Westwood. Hello. <laughs> and I'll stop it. Jeez. <laughs> And I'm Sally Christie. So for the dignity I know, for it's once gone. in the cave. <laughs> We're one minute in and the dignity's gone. Um, on tonight's show, we will be discussing the much-anticipated, well, anticipated for me at least, remake of Dario Argento's masterpiece, Suspiria. We will also look at Orson Welles' final film that was released 33 years after his death, The Other Side of the Wind. But first, we are going to delve into Joel Edgerton's second directorial offering with Boy Erased. So Boy Erased tells the story of Jared Edmonds, uh, the son, who's played by Luke Hedges. He's the son of a Baptist pastor in a small American town who must overcome the fallout of being outed to his parents, who is played by Nicole Kidnam and Russell Crowe. Sounds like an Australian movie so far, doesn't it? It's true. It's true. Doesn't sound like a small American town. No pun intended there, Emma. <laughs> So his parents struggle with reconciling their love for their son with um, their beliefs. Fearing loss of family, friends and community, Jared is pressured into attending a conversion therapy program. So while there, Jared comes into conflicts with a conflict with their leader, who's played by Joel Edgerton, who looked exactly like Ned Flanders. Yeah, that's yeah true. he did. And his journey begins to find his own voice and accepting him his true self. Um, so Cerise, what do we think of Boy Erased? Uh, I was not over-enthused. I was not affected by this film in the slightest, and I wanted to be put through the ringer. I felt this is the sort of film that should put me through the ringer um, as someone of a queer persuasion. Um, Not that I've ever had any experience quite like this, but I've certainly encountered some resistance to my identity from without and indeed from within, and so... A film like this should speak to me, and frankly, it didn't. And I don't know if it's because there's too much star power. I saw Nicole Kidman. I saw Russell Crowe. I didn't see characters. I saw Australians acting and doing their acting thang. And I found it alienating because they're, they're familiar. If it had something a bit more moored in, in um, a realistic uh, mode of performance and setting with, say, even non-professional actors or just people who aren't familiar to me, especially not familiar to me from Australia, mm. uh, I might have bought into this more. But it it kept me at a distance the whole time because I was watching people I've seen on screen forever and often heard with Australian accents and I, I just flatly couldn't really buy into it. It didn't bore me exactly and I didn't think it was poorly made it just didn't move me and that to me is a tremendous failing of a film Mm. you saw um the miseducation of Cameron Post I did um which I have seen as well I feel that both of these films in that regard I expected to be really moved by both of them and i Neither of them did for me. That, that one... Um, um, I, I, I quite like them both. Yeah, Miss Education did a lot more for me, but it also made me laugh. It had a bit more tonal... Yeah, it did, yeah. ...variety mm-hmm. to it. It wasn't a bit one note like this one, I feel, really mm-hmm. is. I mean, Miss Education's actually really funny and then yeah, really upsetting. I mean, I, it, it did get to me 
But uh, actually, I mean, I just still didn't feel like I'd been really put through the ringer watching that either. But it still had something of a queer sensibility to it, which this film flatly doesn't have. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, it, this, this film didn't speak to me. And I don't think it's aimed for me anyway. It's meant to speak to people outside of the choir, so to speak. <laughs> it's meant to preach to others. But it's, uh, yeah, I'm, it did nothing preach. for me. Good yeah. word. Good word for this film. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Cerise. This, is, this film is not for you. Um, I think this is the whole thing about the pitch of a film like this. Um, it's very much not for, and this, I, I find it. A, it's a, it's kind of a dichotomy that a, a big, big budget or big, a big films go through as well. That the idea of where's the pitch? We've got a gay subject matter, or we've got a queer subject matter, or whatever. So it's going to be for a queer audience, but it definitely isn't. It's it's pitched towards the a very conservative, um, older group of people, I would say. And I think it, it, in in doing so, it actually is hoping to do some something good. The characters are presented in a, a very favourable light, uh, like Lucas Hedges' character. Lucas Hedge, is that right? Did I say his name right? Lucas Hedges, Hedges. Yeah. yeah, he's... Um, his character's parent, well, his parents, so even though Nicole Kidman sort of oscillates between Tammy Baker at times. and <laughs> I just say her outfits are <laughs> fantastic. So I and was the wig, living for them. The wig. This, that was my favourite thing about the film was Nicole Kidman's wig and outfits. Her wigs. I, I love her. Bringing I just, the Baptist yeah, bling. I know. She well, was well, they Tammy really, Faye Baker. They really tri- they've trod a line with this film where they tried to, you could see that they were being very careful not to go into fire and brimstone territory because <laughs> it could it could have really have done that. So I think that the pitch was to people um, who uh, would would maybe think that gay conversion therapy was okay. To be totally honest, mm. and I know that can be. Um, I know that we have a very a much more worldly audience at Three Triple R, and that can be a bit of uh, it can be a bit confusing to us all but there are people out there unfortunately that are like that and um and that's and that's the pitch that's the pitch Mm. it's hitting that broad pitch i would say in that way if that's what the film's talking to and that's what it's doing fabulous great if Mm. it can change some people's minds and open some people's minds personally i did actually find some of those sequences quite disturbing um Especially when it it kind of moved into the third act of the film. I had no idea what gay conversion therapy involved myself, to be totally honest. I kind of guessed at what it could be. Uh, and um, yeah, it was it was it was very similar to that. But um, I think that this this film it, it has to be maybe there's there's part of the the job of the film is to pitch it correctly. And there's an assumption that because a certain subject is about some, something that it'll be pitched to a certain audience, but not necessarily. I did find when I was watching this yesterday that the audience were all older couples um well there you go that's well in some ways i'd say maybe yeah. that's this is being very blanket statement here but maybe that's that's good mm. straight so, couples yes mm. Mm. yep so it was all older straight couples sort of around you know my my parents age i don't know if it's because i went to the early session <laughs> that might, uh, early cinema? Sunday session. cinema nova 
Mm. Um, so that might have had something to do with it. But, um, yeah, I, I did notice that, that it was definitely an older audience. Um, one thing that I found interesting when sort of looking into this film a little further because it was based on a memoir um, was that the family and what's his name, the guy that it was that actually wrote Oh, Jared Connolly? Jared Connolly, yes. Yeah. Um, that they were all... His entire Conley, family Conley, was very sorry. heavily involved in the making of this film um, to the point where Joel Edgerton and Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman all went to church with the Baptist father. <laughs> well, I think this this film makes a, a definite point of not showing any schism in the family as such. Mm. And um, I think that's interesting because in some ways... Something like a film like Beautiful Boy does the same thing. It's showing no no schism in the family, you know, uh, whereas there's been a whole lot of, uh, I think previously it would be showing it in a different way. And I guess, I mean, there's a, a million, millions of coming out stories across the world. I can only, not knowing the source material, mm. I can only assume it's uh, faithful to... Um, Gerard, Garrard, I think his name is. Garrard Conley, yes. Garrard Conley's story, if he was heavily involved in it, but I'm not entirely sure. I know that um, Joel Edgerton did offer to him to write the um, screenplay. Okay. And he declined because he said that he didn't want to have to go back over the material that closely and he didn't want to have to, um, you know, I, I guess get rid of a lot of it for film um, but he would be an advisor on it so that Joel Edgerton ended up writing the screenplay then drafts were sent to him to either approve or you know say this needs to be changed mm. yep. something I'd have welcomed that was a lot more prevalent in the miseducation of Cameron Post was some psychologization of the therapists so Joel Edgerton plays this cod therapist character mm-hmm. we, we grasp pretty well we, very explicitly closer to the end that he has no qualifications really he's just making this shit up Mm. Uh, but we also we we do get it that he's been on the other side of the equation but that's not made clear enough at all it's not really teased out it'd be nice to know something of his journey such that he then Mm. felt compelled to evangelize Mm. and try to convert people as he had himself been converted and miseducation of Cameron Post really played that out a lot more interestingly made the therapists a lot more three-dimensional whereas here they're really quite two-dimensional though I've, I've got to give some kudos to flea who plays a quite yeah, formidable flea was another good. Australian. yeah um, well that's flea. true isn't he he's yeah. actually yeah, he was born here flea was Australian. He's Australian I think he left here at the age of a few months but yeah <laughs> we're but, claiming him but he has a, he has a grandma flea. here yeah I mean, he, he's excellent and quite scary in his his role yeah, as he was great in it staunch disciplinarian and homophobe mm. yes <laughs> but uh yeah yeah, who'd imagine that gay conversion therapist would be homophobic? Who knew? <laughs> I do know that the um it's a spoiler. The decision <laughs> to not look into Joel Edgerton's character and their character and his character development and perhaps you know what happened because there was a oh, I'm not going to say because that actually is a spoiler, but um you know him saying that perhaps he had been in homosexual relationships before, um, that that was a very conscious decision by Joel Edgerton, that there were things that were filmed that were edited out because they thought that if they went into the character, um, he was playing too much that took away from the narrative of it being about their family situation. So, mm. 
It's interesting because uh, Stuart Richards, who, who Stuart Richards, who is usually on our show, actually uh, wrote a great piece on this for the conversation. Um, so if people want to look it up, it's interesting to get his point of view when he's not here. Uh, that the the thing was that also it was a very a film that was presented its choices of sexuality were presented in a really interesting way it was like the luke hedges character something similar to i would actually say like the danish girl which cerise Cerise Howard here, look up Cerise's piece in The Age too, um, wrote about the Danish girl, was um, kind of to keep him, he was sort of like an asexual, almost like this just this sweet character and that was part of the, I think, the pitch to appeal to a certain audience as well. Mm. And the only really, there was a, a disturbing sexual scene in the film and I, I did find that really disturbing and... That is the only true sexual scene. Yeah, I thought that was, was interesting as yeah, well. Yeah, and that mm. was that was a really interesting choice. Yeah, this film, I really do think that everything that we have to say around it is around the pitch, where it's who it's talking mm-hmm. to and who it's decided to talk to, and in that way, um, in the way in in what it's in the who it's trying to talk to suggests that it's going for more mainstream and os- the Oscar buzz. So a queer well. film for straight people. The exactly. straight The straights get to exactly. milk the, the queer uh, identities and culture for Oscar glory again. Yes. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> you, did mani- you did say something that I felt was really prescient in with uh, Danish Girl Cerise where you described it as a big budget o- um, exploitation film. Did I? I can't remember. Yes. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that, I mean, I, that resonated with me. So I do I find something it. very cynical about Oscar bait performances and you know, especially mannered performances, people, straight actors gaying up for or queering, especially drag performances. Uh, you know, these highly transformative performances going for Oscar glory just because people can see that you're acting because, look, mm. you don't even know it's them because they look different. <laughs> <laughs> Spare Alice me. Spies Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> case in point. Very strong case in point. Boy Erasers showing at the moment on wide release, I believe. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Suspiria, the 2018 remake by uh, Luca Guadagnino, who directed Call Me By Your Name. Um, so. He's taken key elements, so essentially a young American dancer, Susie Banyan, who's played by Dakota Johnson, arrives in a 1970s Berlin to audition for the world-renowned Helena Marcos Dance Company. Stunning the troupe, um's famed choreographer, Madame Blanc, who's played by Tilda Swinton, with her raw talent. She vaults to the role of lead dancer and Olga, the previous lead, breaks down and accuses the company's female directors of being witches. As the rehearsal the rehearsals intensify for the final performance of the company's signature piece. Susie and Madame Blanc grow strangely close, suggesting that Susie's purpose in the company goes beyond merely dancing. Meanwhile, an inquisitive psychotherapist trying to uncover the company's dark secrets enlists the help of another dancer who probes the depths of the studio's hidden chambers. Emma, now, (laughs) what did you think of Suspiria? 
There's been a lot said about Suspiria. I've tried to avoid reading it, actually. Yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, yeah. But, but you failed, didn't you? Uh, You've I read, read some a, stuff. I, I read a little bit. I read about... I read Alex, Alex, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, we our have to, We have to give her a big shout-out at yeah. the moment because she literally wrote the book on Suspiria. Yes, so, of course, yes. I had to read her piece on Suspiria, which was an excellent piece, as in usual. Senses of Cinema? That's right, in Senses of Cinema. If anyone wants to look it up... I just seem to be pimping you publications are. at the moment. Senses of Cinema. Senses of Cinema. Alex. Dot yeah, com. Yeah. <laughs> Dot com. Uh, yes, this uh, this is an interesting experience watching Suspiria. I'm like you, Sally. I've, uh, well, I grew up on the original film. So when you – I think everyone has uh, – if you love an original film, you have sort of this knee-jerk reaction at the, the, the announcement of a remake. And – well, I don't feel that necessarily a remake has to be bad. In fact, there's been a lot of great remakes. In fact, I just wrote a book on a remake called The Fly, which is a wonderful film. And um, also there was something like Dawn of the Dead, which was a film that I grew up on as well, that I feel that was an excellent remake. And in, in fact... Um, uh, the director of Dawn of the Dead had a good point when he mentioned he talked about remakes being taking more of the essence of the film and creating something else. That's where a good remake really comes from and I think that's where Luca Guadagnino has been quite successful with this film. He hasn't tried to imitate the original film because the original film is so distinctive and it would just look like an imitation, literally look like an imitation uh, the the th- interesting points here was that he steered clear of um, he, he makes much more of a, a statement on feminism not just even a feminist statement but a 360 degree view of femi- f- feminism uh, in this film I felt I felt that he failed quite badly at some points with that at though. some points mm-hmm. well the the first film wasn't at all the fact that it was uh, a film about witches in a a dance school of female witches could it sort of sets it up for that but it wasn't at all and it really actually it, it brought in a lot of male characters too who were part of the school which we don't have in this film and it kind of sets them up as a feminist uh not a feminist uh, a terrorist cell if you know what i mean with mm-hmm. that kind of beta meinhof thing going at the same time although i didn't know what their terrorism was because terrorisms are very um externalized and this school was very very internalized the whole time but I think that Guadagnino, coming at it as a uh, director of um, a non-horror director, shall we say, came uh, created a number of positives and a number of negatives, which was um, the positives being I felt he created quite an original horror feel and there's a sequence at the start, amazing sequence of body horror, me being obsessed with the fly, <laughs> the body, body horror sequence, which I thought was quite incredible and set me up for more incredible things but where it got to the climax I felt that he didn't know what to do with it and decided to um, kind of devolve into the world of for want of a better word camp rather than horror Mm -hmm. and that was problematic for me as well as another storyline which I might give to you Sally which is the 
the strange man, the strange psychiatrist the man. The strange yes. psychiatrist man. Who was the actor that played him? What are they billing it as? Oh, oh uh, some um, Luft, Luft, what's his name? Some notional theatre actor who's Lutz. absolutely no film credits or any existence online, seemingly at all. No. Curiously, what could it mean? Uh, could it really could, be Tilda who Swinton? Who could he be? I don't know. Maybe Tilda Swinton. Um, Why not? Look, I I went into this film and I was really nervous before it started. I felt anxious. <laughs> I was nervous, and there. I came away from it liking, really loving half of it. I saw it again last night. I've seen it a couple of times now. And really disliking another half of it, Um, which is perhaps, well, is the storyline with this mysterious male um, psychiatrist who is looking into the companies, you know, to see what their secrets are pretty much. Um, I, I found that that was really redundant and took away from the inherent femininity that is Suspiria um, because it really sort of ended up being focused on a male story, which... um, But it was a non-story. Yeah, I know. Uh, It was very boring. That's what I thought too, and then it became this kind of big climactic thing, which the second time I watched it last night... I was thinking if we remove this entire story, is any of the goodness of this film going to be gone? And it wouldn't be. All the the best bits would be there still and it would be even better because it would be a more compact film. And it would be shorter. And it would be an hour shorter. It's two and a half hours long, this film. Yes. I think you could have removed the entire Bader-Meinhof subplot as well. Yes. It adds precious little to it, as does the divided Berlin setting. It's Mm. all... Or yep. really just padding. I yeah. found that too, that there was a lot of padding with it. And if it had have just been focused sort of in the dance school and we had just looked at that, it, I think it would have been a great uh, film. And weirdly, while I understand you don't want to remake Suspiria, having um, a setting quite as particular as Berlin in the 70s that, and with the wall omnipresent in this yeah. film... Mm. It reminded me so much more of a horror film that I adore, which is Possession. And I couldn't yeah, stop I thinking was, of Possession watching this. Yep. Um, which it's was annoying because... visually more like mm, Possession. Like the palette. The palette, yes. Yes, <laughs> indeed. I think that's probably yeah. a really intentional thing to do that because it's almost a sepia palette in this version of Suspiria, which is the total opposite to Argento's, which, you know, I think is very, very intentional. But I did feel like... It looks like the opening of Possession, yeah. especially when she's walking up to their dance school at the start. Mm. Yeah, curious. And, of course, the, the original Suspiria has such a virtuoso sort of 10 or 12-minute long opening sequence culminating in a, a ludicrous, um, was it a double, double murder or even triple? Just that incredibly baroque uh, um, set piece, which, I mean, it's preposterous, but it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And, even the architecture. Yeah. Well, especially yeah. the architecture. Mm-hmm. Everything about that building is just gobsmacking. It's expressionism through a Technicolor filter, and it's yep. just nuts. And I love it so much. <laughs> and I didn't get that sort of a hit from this film at any point. Though there was one one sequence where one character does undergo some serious body horror. Um, <laughs> it's a, just an amazing, amazing yeah, which, sequence, which is actually amazing. amazing, and and did give me the heebie-jeebies, and especially because <laughs> it was really quite prolonged. So. That had me squirming a bit in my seat, but much of the rest of the time I was only squirming through restlessness because this film really felt very bloaty Mm. and um, it frustrated me. That whole um, 
the the whole thread with the the prosthetic, <laughs> highly prosthetic male uh, psychiatrist. Uh, older, very much older male psychiatrist was seemed to play out as a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. It was almost like the the cast and crew having a little bit of fun and saying, oh, we're throwing in a little bit of something here for the original fans because it allowed them to bring Jessica Harper, who played the role of Susie one Patton. of the witches. Yeah, I know. I agree. <laughs> they didn't need to do that. Yeah. But that was what yeah. I think that they saw that as something well to keep her to to highlight her to keep her separate yeah i was i was really hoping that jessica harper would have been one of the witches and i think one thing that is very interesting about this interpretation of suspiria is in argento's one that we have the big reveal at the end is that they're witches um whereas where with guadagnino's one we're aware of that pretty much straight away that it is about witches so it, it, it is a very different story in that way and i really would have liked to have seen jessica harper being one of the witches <laughs> yeah i like i did like the way that they the 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 kind of the maniacal playfulness of the witches at times. Oh, like, I loved them. That was wonderful mm-hmm. where they had, for example, the, the I think it was police officers who came in yes. and that they were, they were um, he was kind of catatonic and they were playing with his penis yep. <laughs> and things like that. They were laughing and sort of, you know, that, that was, I liked those. They had a, shall I say, they had a joie de vivre, mm. our, our witches in this There was <laughs> this a version. lot about this film that I really loved. Um which was the the storyline of the witches and the storyline the dance school I, I really liked. Um, I thought Tilda Swinton was absolutely phenomenal in it. Like, mm. I just, I love her. And I also think that Dakota Johnson was really good too in the role of Susie Banyan. But um, I did love the dancing. The first film has really doesn't have much dancing. You know, I, one thing I like about both Suspirias is that I think the dancing's a bit shit in both of them. Oh. I really liked it. I think because it was very choppy. It was the way that he actually filmed it mm-hmm. and that he played on breath and the size and, and Suspiria actually means size. So mm-hmm. he really decided to play up on, on the title of the film through the breath of dance, which I, I, that that sold, that was part of the, the film that really sold mm. Uh, was sold to me. Yeah, I think there is... Well, there was lots that I really enjoyed about this, but it is quite clear that Guadagnino is not um, a horror director. Um, Alex... Alexander Nicholas, who, you know, used to co-host Plato's Cave, she was saying that she thinks that the weakest parts of this film are the horror, um, which I kind of tend to agree with, apart from that one body horror sequence that we've been talking about, I think is great. Uh, and I think one other thing that was so amazing about the Argento uh, Suspiria is Goblin's score in yep. it. And I think Tom York's score is just <laughs> atrocious. I think it's atrocious. It's just a it bit... It doesn't suit it at nice, all. No, it really mm. doesn't. It doesn't have that atmosphere. It doesn't, yep. doesn't somehow invoke any dread, any sense mm. of it. Yeah. It doesn't produce anxiety. He just... Uh, it, it was like almost... It, it, look, it was there. I didn't have a problem with the score, it, but it, it was probably I because... <laughs> 
Well, I didn't have a problem because I didn't really notice well, it. Well, I noticed it in parts yeah. where it was kind of, it just did not fit with what was happening mm. at all. Mm. Also, we've had Udo Kier in almost every other film we've spoken about this year, and he <gasps> wasn't know. in this, and this is an outrage. I was, we were just talking about this at the pub before we oh, got we? here. That <laughs> I, was, I was saying, I was really hoping that um, the old man character would rip off his bodysuit and it would be Udo yeah. Kier. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Huzzah! It's Udo Kier. <laughs> that would be wonderful. But um, yeah. Even though, I, I, you know, it, it was, it was. I've seen it twice, so I'm, I must have liked it. You know, a, a weird thing because uh, I missed the show where you reviewed Halloween, but that yeah. this recent remake again by a director uh, you wouldn't associate with horror ordinarily, David Gordon Green. But he had been slated to remake Suspiria exactly. prior to Guadagnino, and that made absolutely no sense to me then, and still doesn't. And <laughs> nor does Guadagnino so much taking this on either, even though he's someone who's. Very aesthetically sophisticated. He loves. Um, I think he's a better fit, though, than yeah. David Gordon Green. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Pineapple yeah. Express <laughs> versus I Am Love. Yes. <laughs> when I heard that Guadagnino was was doing Suspiria, that kind of gave me a little bit of hope in the remake. I got excited about it then when I heard that him and uh, Tilda Swinton were going to be involved in it. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so um, Suspiria is screening now at all good independent cinemas. Three, triple, ah. Our final film that we are looking at this evening is The Other Side of the Wind. In 1970, legendary director Orson Welles began filming what would ultimately be his final cinematic opus, with a cast of luminaries that include John Huston, Peter um, Bogdanovich, Susan Strasberg, and Welles' partner in his later years, Odja Koda. I think I pronounced that correctly. Oya. 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 Oya Koda. Um, beset I by watched f- the documentary. <laughs> beset by financial issues and production that ultimately stretched to 1976, um, soon gained industry-wide notoriety for the never-to-be-completed or to-be-never-completed or released. So more than a thousand reels of film languished in a Paris vault until March 2017 when producers Frank Marshall and Philip Jan Rimshaw spearheaded to have Wells's vision completed more than 30 years after his death. The Other Side of the Wind tells the story of famed filmmaker Jake Hannaford, who returns to Hollywood years after a self-exile in Europe and plans to complete work on his own innovative comeback movie. Maybe sounds a little bit like Orson Welles. <laughs> a satire of the classic Hollywood um, studio system as well as a new establishment who was shaking things up at the time. Welles' final film is both fascinating time capsule and a now distant era in movie making, as well as the long-awaited new work from an undisputed master of his craft. Um, just before we start this, I'll mention that accompanying this, there is a documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which Emma watched instead of the movie. <laughs> so, we're going to be commenting wrong. on both the film and the documentary about the making of the film. Yeah. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't here last week, so when you organised it, I got all the little I put confused. it in an email. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, Cerise, I know that you were that you suggested that we had we looked at this, well, which has been a, exactly it's been a straight to Netflix release, which is I don't know it's quite, quite astonishing I think. Well, it is, but Netflix did an awful lot to make sure that the thing even got finished, and this was the subject of a huge hoo ha at Cannes this year because Cannes refused to screen it, even though it was Wells. I mean, yeah, really? fucking hell, Orson Wells, but yep. um, because the because the rule over there is if yeah. it doesn't get a theatrical uh, release, it, it just Cannes won't show it. 
okay. is their thing. So Venice screened it and got Do to Do we bring think it. that's going to change because of things like this? Uh, yeah, well, they're under pressure too because like it's beginning it to look after and after. But, I mean, I would have loved to have seen this in a cinema. So that's what I thought I mean, when I was watching it, it too. It is so stunning. Mm. It's uh, And look, is it really his last film? He had so many unfinished films. Um, there could yet be another one completed, which has mm. got to have square quotes put around it because this film is as best as has been as people could interpret, this is Wells's film that he never got to complete. He shot an almighty amount of footage, but he didn't get to, say, blow a lot of it up to 35 mil. A lot of it was shot on 16 mil or 8 mil. All sorts of formats were used because this film is about itself. It's about Wells. It's about the cinema of the time, but it's about its own making of it. So invested in what Wells himself was going through, trying to make this film and failing to find finances enough to finish it that his own proxy in this film played by john you know, another legendary director john houston um it, it's so referential to wells's own life everything in this film is just like a russian dolls orson wells experience and uh the more you steep yourself in the mythology around orson wells the, the richer this film will be and i i there's so much literature out there on wells and even on this film even before it finally got to be released because a lot for a long time people have been writing about it writing about the fragments of it that were in semi-circulation and that people like uh, one of wells's biographers film historian joseph mcbride he'd written about it mcbride is in the film yeah. as one of the critics who was pursuing uh, jake hannaford and hanging out at hannaford's place which is wells's place at mm. this great party they show where uh, hannaford slash wells is trying to find <laughs> funds to finish the film uh, so it's it's so reflexive. And there's a film within the film, at mm, least the one. But the film within the film shot on glorious 35 mil seems to be, and an, I mean, it's spectacularly beautiful, but it's a completely bonkers seeming parody of Antonioni, yeah. but sexed up a whole lot. So I maybe it's it. gone through a Radley Metzger filter or something like that <laughs> via Russ Meyer in one early heavily sexed up scene, which I the, had my eyes out on stalks. I've also you slide old dog. I think maybe we're, we're thinking of the same scene, which was my absolute favourite scene, and I thought, God, I would love to see that on uh, in a cinema, which was um, where she was in the bathroom with the... The piece of uh, cloth clothing and an ice cube, and, and it ice, was well, just there's that, yeah, absolutely amazing. I thought it was one of the most beautiful scenes that I've ever seen in a film, and just to watch that at home on my TV seemed a bit of a shame. I know, me too. Though at least it still looked gorgeous. The actual filmic quality yep. of mm. that, that imagery came through. The colours, they're, they're not digitally producible. It seems those colours have a certain chemical quality, um, 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 an alchemical quality. It's, mm. it's so beautiful. Even if that imagery is totally preposterous and that film is clearly extremely pretentious and it's meant to be, it um, <laughs> still looks incredibly beautiful. Yeah, that was my definitely my favourite part was the film within the film and just his sort of piss take of Antonio films. I, I loved it. I thought that that was totally spectacular. What about because um, uh, I didn't get to see this film <laughs> But you can at your leisure, <laughs> you can, Emma I can at, say, I can, can I talk will, about I the documentary watch it. The documentary made a po- big point of the sex scene in the car Oh, see, I, incredible I, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah The choreography which, of it yeah. is uh, extraordinary I mean, this film is edited in a way that 
would look out of place now, but wouldn't by dint of its speed, because this is edited mm. furiously, but there's a stylisticness to it that's so new wavy. And even Claude Chabrol is in mm. the cast, one of the, the many, <laughs> yes. and, and of this new breed of filmmakers, little cameos for Dennis Hopper and Paul Mazursky, and a huge role for Peter Bogdanovich, who was Wells's uh, apostle. Susan Strasberg. Well, a pretty key mm. character. And yep. I mean, this, yeah, the film is overloaded but the, the Bogdanovich Wells relationship plays out a lot um, with the I mean Houston Houston slash Wells Bogdanovich I think his character's name's Brooksy or something yeah, I think yeah. It, yeah. but he's it's so clearly actually playing himself um, and Bogdanovich oh, yeah, there, there are so many so much being skewered in this film and so it's, that it's uh, it's going to demand uh, quite a few viewings yet to unpack it. Yeah, I thought that too, I feel, that I would need to yeah, see it again. I feel Definitely. immediately very invested in this mythology. Mm. I wish to really get going deeper and also just gawp at the, the beautiful images yep. and some more. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting exercise is playing with um, directors' films uh, post-death. And, and as you said, Cerise, with Wells, he did not, he did start with a lot of films and not finish them, uh, so it's it's kind of like this. This I, I have I'm in two minds about it. Like you know, it's not his total vision. Is it what he would have wanted in I the end? They do have a lot of people that a, were working on the film with him, though, that have kind of pieced this together, yeah, don't they? He you worked on the documentary, well, yes, Emma. I worked, didn't, so you can tell us. <laughs> he worked very close with the um, the cinematographer, Gary Graver, who hadn't done a whole lot before that, but I think he contacted Wells and the idea was um, he was the... Wells said the first... You're the second cinematographer that has contacted me for a project... Uh, the first one was Greg Tolland, who shot Citizen Kane. Right. Um, sorry, that turned out that all right. Turned that turned out all right. So he said, "Let's do this." So that's um, that's how this all came about. But the 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 documentary reminded me a lot about of. Uh, Jodorowsky's June documentary, mm-hmm. if anyone's seen yeah. that, which is another documentary about a film that was never, never made. I don't know how much they, I can't remember, it was didn't, a few years ago. It, it didn't get much shot, but no. there was so much conceptual stuff. I think yep. there was a whole graphic novel almost created. Well, a whole Giga universe. Yeah, read, yeah was created. That's right, mm. through HR Giga. Uh, so this film had a very f- similar, the documentary had a similar feel. And I also have to say about the documentary it was directed by Morgan Neville who's probably directed one of my favorite films this year which is Won't You Be My Neighbor. Oh really? So yeah, yeah, oh. so the same documentary filmmaker. Um they talk a lot about this idea of masks in it mm-hmm. and this um I mean this is so meta as we as you guys have just been talking about this film within a film idea and and a lot of directors have played with this Fellini is another one who's played with this. This idea of the mask, its it, they called it a film that's made with a mask. And they even talked about things like the dummies that are in, included in the film and um, the fact that Wells throughout his entire career had sort of this weird obsession with... Um, putting on fake noses. In all his films, he had a fake nose. Uh, So this constant idea of masks, which is, yeah, very interesting. Mm. So both The Other Side of the Wind and documentaries (laughs) about it, which is They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, are currently streaming now on Netflix so you can watch them at your leisure. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard. Witch. Witch. Emma Westwood. Witch. 
Witch, witch. And myself, Sally Christie. Witch, witch, witch. <laughs> On tonight's show. Which witch is which? <laughs> On tonight's show, we discuss Boy Erased, which is now screening on wide release, Suspiria, which is screening at good independent cinemas, and The Other Side of the Wind, and it's a accompanying documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is streaming on Netflix. You can subscribe to Plato's K via um, podcasts, via iTunes, or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. So a huge thank you to Faith Everard for uh, for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.